You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly. Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. We're broadcasting live here from the Internet Law Center in downtown Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. We have a great show with, for you today. And um, we're thrilled to have with us Cameron Carey. He was the former general counsel at the Department of Commerce and one time acting secretary of the Department of Commerce. And uh, he now is uh, a um, he is the Andrew Tisch Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Brooks and Brookings Institute, and as well as Senior Counsel at Sidley and Austin, and a visiting scholar at the MIT Media Lab. And uh, he is joining us from Boston, home of the first place Boston Red Sox. Welcome, Cam. Uh, thanks, Bennett. It's great to be back. And go. Yeah, this is Cam's third appearance. We've had him on previously to talk about um, the a study he had done comparing U.S. and e, uh, EU privacy regimes um, in the battle over the whole um, you know privacy safe harbor, EU safe harbor. And he also was on uh, to talk about the ICANN transition. So it's great to have you back, Cam. And uh, you know today's a. a sad day and I guess in American politics as uh, um, funeral festivities begin for John McCain uh, today in Phoenix and um, I know that in your work at the Department of Commerce as well as your work on your brother's campaign for president that you you had some dealings with the senator and uh, I don't wonder if you have any thoughts on uh, this week. I'm sure. I mean, I certainly have political differences with John McCain, but uh, enormous respect for him. And I think, particularly to me, what he has really stood for uh, is uh, some of our country's reconciliation over over Vietnam. You know, my brother 
John Kerry uh, got to know him uh, in uh, in the Senate, um, uh, and I think they were very wary of each other uh, starting out because they came from very different places uh, in their experience of the, the Vietnam War. Uh, McCain, of course, was a, uh, a POW um, and a strong uh, supporter uh, of the war then and after. Um, my, my brother John went to v- Vietnam, um, was uh, uh, highly decorated there, but came back an opponent of the war and uh, uh, a, a voice uh, of protest. So. Um, you know, they had a lot of reasons uh, uh, not to like each other, but they found a common bond in their service to their country. And both the two of them worked very closely together, first on uh, you know, the, the POW MIA investigation to sort of establish uh, uh, whether there were POWs still in captivity and uh, to establish a process to account for the missing. Uh, and then from there to you know, the normalization of uh, relations with Vietnam. And an important legacy there. Um, so we, we're, we brought you on today because it seems that we are in a pivotal, pivotal point in the debate over privacy. And uh, ironically enough, our very first show uh, we had Chris Olson from the Federal Trade Commission on just as the FTC was involved in their privacy roundtables in 2009, 2010, um, dealing with how to approach privacy after it was largely ignored during the Bush years and uh, trying to get their arms around how much the technology and the privacy equation had changed. And here we are many years later, and we're dealing with, uh, you have a a new privacy regime in Europe. Um, California has just passed their their own um, privacy regime. And um, there's talk about whether Congress should step in and create a national regime. And and you stepped in um, through Brookings and released a report an important one that basically says that um, we need to address legislation. Um, we cannot postpone this any longer. And um, what what led you to reach that conclusion? Um, uh, thanks. Um, well, you know, I've been at this uh, for, for a while now, Bennett. I led the Obama administration's work on consumer privacy and development uh, of what we called the Consumer Privacy Bill of Rights in, in 2012, which was a proposed policy leading to, uh, to, uh, to legislation. Um, and it was my conviction then, uh, and it's still my conviction today, that you know, if America is going to lead on these issues, we need a law. Um, you know, the Europeans have really uh, uh, kind of taken the lead on this. Um, and, you know, but secondly, the, that you know, there are growing gaps in our existing system um, that 
that you know, are just making things uh, harder uh, and harder. Um, and you know, we need to fill the, the, those gaps. I mean, the analogy that I draw in, in that Brookings paper is to uh, that I Love Lucy episode. You remember when she goes on the assembly line? Yes. Um, and you know, she goes, uh, she's working wrapping candies. The assembly line keeps speeding up. Uh, the candies are, are getting closer and closer together, and she's struggling to keep up and, and you know, stuffing candies all over the place. Finally, she turns to Ethel, her sidekick, and she says, I think we're fighting a losing game. And that's where we are with privacy, that, that you know, things... Data, uh, technology are moving faster and faster um, on more and more devices, and we just can't keep up. And our laws are certainly not not keeping up. So we need to change the rules. And we it's interesting that we, we've kind of lost the sense of leadership because in just looking, and by the way, we have a background on this issue and, and Cam Carey on our show notes at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. And, and looking at the history, there was a time when you know, the U.S. was somewhat in the forefront. Um, in 1973, the Health and Human Welfare Department issued a report that kind of called for safeguards of personal privacy and uh, and then even as recent as um, 2000, you know, the Federal Trade Commission was calling for privacy regulation, and then it seems like everything stopped. And and then by the time we started revisiting it, the you know, the internet had taken over, and it just became so, so complex an issue. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And I think if if you go back, I mean, you mentioned. The HEW report uh, back in the 1970s. That's really some of the founding principles of privacy law in the United States. So most of us are familiar with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, um, uh, which was what uh, allows us to look at and get free credit reports and correct them and uh, and so on and and you know see the the privacy notices on a regular basis. Uh, that's sort of the, one of the granddaddies of privacy laws. Uh, but that's an outgrowth of a set of fair information practice principles that were recommended back then. Um, those principles are became the principles that are the basis of uh, European privacy law, and you know, most recently there are new general data protection uh, regulation or, or, or GDPR, um, and those also were the foundational principles of uh, you know, of our Consumer Privacy Bill of Rights in 2012. The problem that we have is, you know, we've been we've been adopting laws. Piecemeal in the United States, right. uh, you know, since since that Fair Credit Reporting Act. So, there's, we've got a lot that's covered. Financial services is covered. Families, uh, yeah. Records, communications, uh, genetic records. So, there's some strong protections in place. Um, we've also got data breach laws. We've got the Federal Trade Commission dealing with 
you know, unfair practices uh, where companies are taking advantage of things or making promises that, that they don't keep. So there's a lot in place. The problem is that, that we have this data big bang that has taken place over the last right, 15 years or so. Um, and you know, we are literally dealing with you know, quintillions of bytes of data every single day. Um, and that's more than people can keep up with. Um, and it's and increasingly you know, large parts of of our interactions in that data is not covered by any of those laws. And then you know a lot of those sectoral laws um, you may or may not be covered depending who gets the data. So you know take take my my smartwatch. Uh, I get health data from from that watch. If I send that data to my doctor, it's covered by HIPAA, the health privacy law. If I send it to an app or you know to Strava uh, to track performance, it's not covered. But it's the same data. It's just as sensitive to me. Uh, it's got the same risks. Um, we ought to be able to have a consistent law across the board, and people ought to be able to have a consistent set of expectations without individuals having to having to to try to manage all of that and keep up with that and understand all the data. It's all happening too fast. I mean, how many people look at the privacy policies and the consent forms that they're checking off? Nobody does that. Right. Uh, and I, I so think there's... a system that has a set of rules that you can count on. I think there was a, some studies that have been done on this. And one study calculated how much time we would need to spend to actually review all the privacies, privacy policies of you know, websites that we interact, the average American interacts with on an annual basis. And it was months. And it, it, it's just astounding. And your report says, you know, basically says that this whole regime that is based on um, you know, disclosure and um, you know, theoretically informed consent um, is is not practical. He said it's unrealistic to re read through the privacy policies, and people simply don't. And uh, there's a great uh, a comedian did a great kind of demonstration of this by um, giving out iPads in some park, Central Park or something like that, Washington Square, and. Um, and this asks, you just have to click, you know, click accept the terms and conditions, and you get the free iPad. And so she would hand out the iPad, and then um, after they got the iPad, she would hand them a baby. And the person would say, what are you doing? And she said, well, you agreed to foster a baby. It's in the terms and conditions. And another one, <laughs> another one he says, you know, okay, give me your shirt. And, you know, and there was even uh, a U.K., um, company that actually put something in that where you know for free Wi-Fi you you agreed to um, clean you know public toilets with a toothbrush. I mean just to make the point and no yeah. one's reading this stuff. Yeah. And, and so so much of policy though focuses on disclosure and it's not that it doesn't have a place, but you know it seems that what is needed is both disclosure and an understanding of certain fundamental rights and and with 
you were involved in drafting the Consumer Privacy Bill of Rights under the Obama administration. Was, was that part of you know, the calculus, understanding that disclosure simply is not enough? Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, I think we recognize that as part of our process. Uh, uh, people, at, leaders at the Federal Trade Commission uh, at the time were saying that the system of notice and choice is broken. I think that's widely recognized, people of the privacy world. But, you know, we are still seeing policy solutions, legislation that really focuses on uh, on notice and on consent uh, and on uh, sort of having individuals uh, try to uh, control things. And the, as you said, there's an important place for that. Uh, I think privacy policies play uh, an important role um, in in sort of defining uh, how companies are going to uh, approach uh, uh, privacy um, and providing uh, you know, a tool for regulators and journalists and privacy advocates and other people. But it's not helpful to the average consumer. And there's no way in this day and age with the number of interactions that we have on a daily basis with you know, our data streams and people who use that data uh, for individuals to be able to manage and control it. I mean, you mentioned that you know, I have an affiliation at MIT. There are you know, PhD candidates and postdocs uh, um, and you know, world-leading uh, uh, professors who are studying what you can learn from data. Uh, Facebook and Google have thousands of engineers who are working on that. Um, you know, how the hell is the average person supposed to understand what you can, everything that you can learn from their data? Um, you know, much less uh, stay on top of uh, all of those interactions uh, and all of the privacy policies. So. Trying to rely on that is absolutely uh, a losing game. And you know, when we talk about having a set of rules and expectations, we need to be talking about how how the the companies that collect and use the data behave, and how they use the data, and you know what their accountability is. Uh, uh, to to the public, and that's what I think a set of rules needs to address. And you know, they're going back to those fundamental principles. You know, we can make those principles uh, um, you know legally enforceable, um, uh, and that would set a baseline that that you know would would give people some objective reason to trust what's happening with their data. Well, um, we're going to take a, a short break as part of our Advertisers' Bill of Rights. <laughs> when we come back, we'll have more with Cam Carey and the Privacy Bill of Rights after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. 
Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. It's time once again to get ready for the 35th Annual Miami Book Fair, November 11th to the 18th. Learn more at MiamiBookFair.com. Over 500 authors will be coming in from all over the world to read their books, answer questions for the audience, and sign autographs. Award-winning luminaries confirmed to attend this year include novelists like Elliot Ackerman, Robert Olin Butler, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, and Deborah Dean. Nonfiction writers like Dr. Mark Agronin, Mohammed Al-Samwawi, Andrea Barnett, and Tina Brown. Celebrities like Justine Bateman, Steve Kornacki, Bill Press. These are just a few of the confirmed 500 authors scheduled to appear at the 2018 Miami Book Fair, November 11th to the 18th. Check out the full schedule of events right now at MiamiBookFair.com. That's MiamiBookFair.com. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. Jamming and spamming, cashing in the clicks. SEO is always in session, only on webmasterradio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and during the break, there was an ad from Miami Book Fair, and uh, we're definitely looking forward to continuing our work with the book fair and interviewing a number of the off authors. Uh, we got our fingers crossed. Uh, maybe that we might be able to get Steve Kranacki. I've been practicing rolling up my sleeves just for that, just for that event. Um, but any of that, we're back talking to Cam Carey, the former general counsel and acting secretary of the Department of Commerce. And uh, I think we last time we talked, it was a brief moment when um, you were the fir- you and your brother were the first two siblings to be uh, cabinet secretaries. Um, that is true. I when the time that I was the acting secretary was what was the first time in in, in history I had the commerce department uh, library check it check the facts on that. <laughs> So there's your uh, was, there's your uh, jeopardy for yeah, je- double a, jeopardy a, a question. Proud moment, but you know what? <laughs> what what on that on the subject of books? I'll put in a plug for uh, his book, which is coming out next week. Uh, it's a, you know, a memoir of his life, you know, from growing up in Vietnam uh, through being Secretary of State. Uh, every day is extra coming out next week okay well we'll look forward to that and maybe you can give him a little nudge to maybe come on this show but uh, 
like enjoying some other authors. Um, but uh, before the break, we were talking about the Privacy Bill of Rights that Cam had a role in, and um, which came out during the second term of the Obama administration. And during that time, you know, the Republicans controlled Congress. And when the Privacy Bill of Rights came out, what what was the reception on Capitol Hill? Well, I uh, spent a fair amount of time there trying to uh, identify champions and I say that, that you know from from Republicans and also from some Democrats, uh, a lot of the response they got were you know, wariness of any kind of regulation um, and the sort of the, the question well, what you know what is the harm we're trying to address here um, and but I think today things have changed uh, e- enormously, and it's a you know, it's a very different conversation on Capitol Hill. I think I think a few things have happened to to change that. I mean, in, in general, we have that uh, data explosion that I was talking about earlier. You had a series of events that have really brought home to people how much data is out there and available and how much you can learn from the data. So you, know, you had the, uh, the Snowden disclosures that came along that was focused on, uh, on the government uh, and that really sort of shifted the conversation away from consumer privacy uh, to government surveillance for a while. Uh, but you know, then you had the uh, you know, it's just a series of major breaches, but particularly, I think the the Equifax breach was was a big wake up call uh, last year, uh, because for a lot of people, you know, this is something that had a real impact on them. They had to worry about uh, uh, their credit and sign up for monitoring or you know make uh, changes in accounts uh, for companies that you know, they never dealt with. Equifax is collecting uh, uh, other people's data and uh, analyzing it and marketing it. Um, and then, of course, you had uh, the the whole Cambridge Analytica thing, which was again, uh, uh, you know, people had some sense that Facebook had a- access to a lot of data, but not much awareness of how much uh, app providers. Uh, to Facebook had and how much they could leverage that information to, you know, the the millions of records that that Cambridge Analytica was able to, to do. So, and of course, all of this cuts across the issues about uh, um, you know the impact of of social media on uh, manipulation of the elections and and all of that. So that has really changed the conversation. And you have Republicans, uh, uh, as well as Democrats, uh, thinking seriously about uh, about legislation. Right now in Washington, there are a lot of different groups that are very actively uh, sitting around tables uh, um, and talking with each other about what legislation should look like. People on Capitol Hill are working on legislation. You've even got the U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, putting together proposals for what legislation on privacy should look like. 
And you know now you have uh, the Trump administration is about to start uh, a policy process to uh, to think about that. So everybody's paying attention to this. Uh, it's it's a very different conversation uh, than it's been sorry, in the entire time that that I've been engaged in this issue. Now, what one thing that kind of informs my view on privacy regulation and why it's been difficult to be enacted is in when I was in law school I worked for a, a Washington lobbyist a banking lobbyist and this is in the mid 80s before Graham Leach Bliley but you know, they were debating those issues for over a decade and I was attending those hearings and just seeing the number of people that had to come to the table to work out a bill like that you know you had the bankers the insurance people the brokers you know, the securities people the regulators for each of those groups at the state and federal level you had the um as well as the consumer groups and then you know just picturing what a table not that it ever happened but if everyone came to the table how big and complex that seating arrangement would be and you know, privacy is probably even more complex. I mean, who would have to be at the table really to um, come to a, a, a resolution of a comprehensive privacy bill? Uh, there's a lot of people, Bennett. I mean, you've got consumer groups and privacy groups, and um, you've got you know all kinds of business sectors. You've got the uh, um, you know the the network providers, uh, you know the Comcasts and Verizons. You've got uh, you know the so edge providers uh, like Google. Those are some of the major players. Uh, uh, but you know today every business is a digital business. So you've got the, the retail sector. You've got data brokers, financial services. You uh, you name it. Everybody's involved. So yeah. This is this is complicated. Legislation like this does not get done easily, but it can be done. I mean, I've uh, when I was in the Obama administration, uh, uh, helped quarterback uh, the passage of patent reform legislation. That's big legislation that had failed several times, um, but it uh, it got passed. I am, you know, the 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 telecom legislation in uh, the Telecommunications Act in 1996 was another thing that it took several Congresses to get passed, but uh, so eventually the differences narrowed down enough to uh, to get it done. So I think that's possible to do here. You've got some powerful motivators too. Um, you know the the European GDPR. Uh, we need an American answer. Um, and then you have the California legislation. You have other states uh, right. uh, adopting mm. uh, legislation. Vermont just adopted a bill and uh, adopted a law on uh, data brokers. Um, so there is uh, the, the sort of the big carrot for uh, a range of industries of being able to get uh, a law that contains federal preemption, um, and I think that that carrot um, is uh, is going to be worth a, a lot to people. So I think there's an incentive for uh, industry to come to the table and come up with something that's 
going to provide some some robust but consistent privacy protections. And so if you were testifying before Congress today, what would you tell them there are the, the three most important things that the, a privacy solution for the current age should have? So I think we need legislation that gives legal force to uh, a set of principles uh, uh, you know, that based on uh, the existing fair information practice principles. So um, that includes transparency. It includes control. Um, it includes respect for the context in which uh, people have provided uh, data. Uh, it includes uh, security. It includes some form of access uh, uh, and correction. Um, uh, it includes uh, accountability. Uh, I think uh, the challenges are how you interpret those uh, uh, those principles and how you how you enforce them. Um, I think legislation should not try to be too prescriptive. That's uh, there. There are some good things uh, in the European legislation, but I think it's uh, uh, it is too prescriptive in ways that I think are not adaptable to uh, to fast changing technologies and to uh, a lot of different contexts and a lot of different scales. Uh, of operation, so I think we need to be flexible in that that respect and sort of do a lot of this on a case by case basis, rather than than try to make rules in advance. Um, and I think ultimately we we do need to look at this in light of sort of classic principles of uh, of what I call a golden rule of privacy, a notion that 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 you know, companies that have data about somebody need to treat that data in ways uh, that put the interests of the person that the data is about first. Um, uh, and that you know, really goes back to some of the, the fundamental principles that, that our right to privacy is based on. You know, the, the, Privacy got its start in the U.S. with that famous uh, Warren and Brandeis uh, Law Review article in 1890. Um, one of the things that they drew on to, def to sort of find that there's a right to privacy was uh, common law about uh, trust and the notion that that you know, somebody who receives confidential information has been entrusted with that. They have a duty to act in the interests of the person who's entrusted it. And that's classic trust principles. We talk a lot about trust in privacy. Right. Um, and that kind of notion of trust is something that, that you know, is still relevant to today in the ways that people behave with data. Now, in your Brookings report, you kind of say it very nice, concisely, that we need an American answer to privacy, a more common law approach adaptable to changes in technology to enable data-driven knowledge and innovation while laying out guardrails to protect privacy. 
that's that's the notion. I think that's that is very much uh, what I was describing now, and having a set of principles, uh, a set of principles that that does get applied mostly through uh, through a common law uh, approach, um, and that you know, is informed by uh, the sense of trust. Now. At the end of the day, what this is about, it's enabling uh, individuals to have trust in how their data is being handled. Right now, now it's blind trust, right? We just, right. you know, we're operating on faith. We need more than that. Now, the privacy debate currently is not being driven from Washington. It's being driven from Brussels and to an extent Sacramento. And mm-hmm. That's right. we, we have GDPR it just went into effect, and there's a lot of causing a lot of concerns and confusion here in the United States as to you know, what, what are the obligations of American companies. And in addition, it kind of caused this um, maybe unintended fallout of uh, the loss of who is data um, as a result of GDPR. And we, we actually had a show on that a couple of weeks ago. And I guess if you had been Commerce Secretary at that time, or do you think the administration should have done something differently as GDPR went into effect? You know, should should there be some U.S. pushback on GDPR? Um, you know, it's it's funny you ask that um, because uh, I was I caused some controversy uh, in. Brussels and in Europe uh, by getting involved in their process uh, uh, at the Department of Commerce um, to the point that uh, um, you know somebody who's you know, still very powerful in the EU today said, you know, since, since when did the United States become the, the 28th Directorate General of the the European Commission, so the, you know, effectively, you know, a cabinet department of of uh, of the European Commission. But I've said many times, I make no apology for that. We are stakeholders in their process, um, uh, and they're stakeholders in ours as well. They they certainly uh, have told us what to do about uh, surveillance and other things. Plenty plenty of times. Um, and I think we were making some real headway in that discussion uh, until the Snowden disclosures came along. And literally, I mean, so if you go back in the history of GDPR, back in May of, of 2013, just before Snowden, the European Parliament was tied up in knots trying to sort through the GDPR. And then along came Snowden, and within about a month, they were headed towards sort of clearing everything on GDPR and basically putting in every single provision they could that would stick it to the U.S. government or stick it to U.S. companies. And then I think you know, a couple of years later, European companies woke up and said, what have you done? Right. <laughs> Two years later, and to be precise. But yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and so I guess from an American perspective, how does, from a policy perspective, what should American policy be now that GDPR is on the books? Uh, 
and I, I guess is this, and also we also have the the continue continue battle over um, the, what is now was the safe harbor, now the the privacy shield, which is also under threat. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean the safe harbor, the uh, privacy shield is undergoing its its second annual review. Um, look, I think the safe harbor issues have more to do with surveillance uh, and issues that you know the hangover from Snowden than they really do about U.S. consumer protection um, and U.S. privacy protections. But I look having having a U.S. law, comprehensive privacy law, would help send the message that. We're not on a same page, but we're on a you know uh, at least reading from the same book uh, on uh, on privacy. Um, we have uh, uh, a good story to tell, I think, when it comes to surveillance. I think the U.S. Uh, in terms of its controls and its transparency. Um, and the norms that it's applied to surveillance is uh, uh, has been a leader. I mean, one of the things that President Obama did uh, that really set uh, a new norm, a new standard internationally, was to say uh, in what's called Presidential Policy Directive 28, PPD 28, that we're going to apply to to people outside the U.S. Effectively, there was as much as we can the same standards of privacy and civil liberties that we apply uh, under our constitution to U.S. persons, um, and that it really is a new norm for other countries. Um, we get in our own way because. Um, one of the important oversights of privacy is the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. Um, uh, and, and that board has not been able to operate uh, for more than two years because of vacancies. Now, the Trump administration has actually nominated uh, some very well-qualified people. I mean, I guess, you know, this is... Uh, this is not the norm for for the Trump administration, but they have. Uh, you know, it's a bipartisan board. Uh, uh, they've nominated some very qualified lawyers. They've uh, nominated a technologist who was in the Obama White House uh, Office of Science and Technology Policy, first non-lawyer uh, to be on the board. Senate hasn't confirmed them yet, so we need to get those people confirmed so that there's a chairman who can hire staff, so that there's a quorum of that body and it can do its work. Um, uh, and that would go a long way towards reassuring the European Union. There's also uh, a so-called privacy ombudsperson in the government oversee uh, or to take complaints about intelligence collection from European citizens. Um, that position has been uh, in the hands of a State Department undersecretary, that's still a vacancy. You know, so if the administration can get somebody appointed, nominated and confirmed 
there, that would also be be very helpful. So, um, you know, the, uh, there's work on the part of the administration. There's work on the part of the Senate. Uh, uh, to improve that picture. But I'm, you know, I believe that the the Privacy Shield, at the end of the day, will be around, um, uh, and that it can withstand challenges in the Court of Justice of the European Union. Great. Um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have more with Cam Carey on the state of the privacy debate. You're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Content Marketing World 2018 comes to Cleveland, Ohio, September 4th through the 7th. Learn more at contentmarketingworld.com. Content Marketing World 2018 is the one event where you will learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry. Content Marketing World will have over 120 sessions and workshops presented by the leading brand marketers and experts from around the world covering strategy, storytelling, ROI, demand generation, AI, and more. Leave Cleveland with all the materials you need to build a content marketing plan that will grow your business and inspire your audience. Save $100 off of registration using promo code radio one. That's radio and the number 100. Don't miss Content Marketing World 2018 in Cleveland, Ohio, September 4th through the 7th. Register now at contentmarketingworld.com. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. The Web Marketing Association is now accepting entries for its 7th Annual International Mobile Web Award Competition. This award program is an opportunity for mobile developers to demonstrate their expertise in this growing medium. It recognizes the individual and team achievements of web professionals all over the world who create and maintain outstanding responsive and mobile websites and mobile applications. Deadline for entry is September 28, 2018. Submit your entry today at www.mobile-webaward.org. That's mobile-webaward.org. Webmasterradio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back and we're talking with Cam Carey about the current state of the American privacy debate. Um, Earlier, Cam had mentioned his brother's book. It is called Every Day is Extra, and it comes out on September 4th and it's available from Simon & Schuster. And I think you can pre-order it on Amazon now. So uh, we'll add a we'll add a for pre-order for a while. Yeah, so we will add a link to that on our show notes as well. And uh, Cam, when Thank when are you, you writing your when are you writing your book? I'm actually working on a, a book on privacy. Uh, very um, good. So really, uh, 
expanding uh, at length on some of the ideas uh, in that Brookings paper we've been talking about. Uh, why why privacy is important, uh, why it matters to people, and what we need to do about it. And we were talking earlier before the break about the kind of the the kind of chasm or maybe disconnect between the U.S. and EU on privacy, largely caused by Snowden and our inability to uh, necessarily make them feel comfortable since then. And you you mentioned the the privacy board and. Um, I agree with you that we, that needs to be done. There's some very good people um, who have been nominated for them. Some of them have had the opportunity to run into over the years. So uh, I definitely agree. Sure, with well, you. one of them, of course, is Travis LeBanc. That's who I was thinking of right off the top. Of California yeah. privacy. I mean, Travis worked at the. He worked started off here in California. I think working with Camilla. Yes, he did. Harris, yeah. I, I I worked with him when he was in in Camilla Harris's office. Yeah. And uh, so, um, very, <laughs> very good people there, and hopefully that we can move forward on that and, and start the debate there. I guess the bigger question is: is how would you assess the current state of U.S. leadership on the internet in general right now? Um, you know, I guess I would say mixed. Um, one of the things. Uh, that that I've been encouraged about uh, in the Trump administration, maybe could be one of the only things, Bennett, uh, <laughs> is that there's uh, there's been a fair amount of continuity in in uh, in this area. So at least, I mean, if you go to cybersecurity, um, you know, at least until uh, recently, uh, there was a lot of uh, continuity and and some capable people uh, in charge of cybersecurity. So the people who were uh, at the National Security Council until uh, John Bolton became the National Security Advisor, who were dealing with cybersecurity, were professionals uh, who understood the issues, um, and as a result, produced uh, you know, some pretty good, uh, some pretty good policies. Um, and that included uh, doubling down on the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST cybersecurity framework uh, uh, that we developed when I was there, um, and that's become sort of a, a real centerpiece of, of cybersecurity policy and, and a way for organizations to look at their cybersecurity posture. Um, and I think we've seen the same thing across some other areas. So the people who are working and at administering and protecting the privacy shield uh, are doing a good job. Both the career uh, professionals, uh, uh, you know, people that, that I worked with, but also some of the political appointees. Um, There's some good people uh, in cybersecurity uh, at the, the Department of Homeland Security. Um, there's an international strategy on cyber that preserves a lot of the policies about keeping an open internet. Um, so, you know, if you go to sort of the operational levels, uh, things are okay. Uh, you know, the problem is I think there's not the same high level leadership 
that there was. When I was at the Department of Commerce, we made the digital economy a major priority of the department, and I think that carried on up to the White House um, uh, as well. And um, for a lot of the time that that I was in the government as uh, nominally uh, the number three official Department of Commerce, mostly the number two, and briefly as we talked about the number one, I was the senior person in the government sort of looking out for those issues and and dealing with international partners. By the time I left, the wake of Snowden, um, that senior official was Barack Obama, supported by his cabinet and senior staff in the White House. We don't have that kind of leadership no. now. I mean, the, you know, the Office of Science and Technology Policy uh, in the White House is virtually uh, empty. So you know, this is kind of devolving out to the agencies. Um, that's maybe a good thing in, uh, in this administration. True. Now, I don't know if you know Christopher Painter, but he's actually going to be on the show next week. We'll be talking about cyber diplomacy under Trump. So it, this is a conversation we're definitely Well, continuing. absolutely. Yeah, no, yeah. I know Chris, uh, Chris Painter well. Um, and, you know, I've written about uh, that uh, example. I've neglected to, to mention the 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 cyber coordinator role at the State Department, but that is an example of you know, reducing the the sort of high level of things. So when you know he reported directly to uh, the Secretary of State, it meant that that you know he could deal with all of the different branches, political, economic, uh, security, etc that are there at the State Department. Um, and now they've moved it out to one of the bureaus and kind of reduced the level and the visibility. And I think that was, that was a great mistake. Right. And we only have a, too. I mean, they've passed legislation to change that. We only have a couple minutes left, so I have two quick things. One, what is more likely to happen by the end of um, 2019? Uh, that Will it be a, a privacy, federal privacy bill or a Red Sox World Series title? <laughs> uh, I guess I'd have to say a Red Sox uh, World Series title. I mean, you know, they're uh, uh, they're they're on track to contend this year. Um, I don't think we've yet got any privacy bills uh, emerging that uh, I see as contenders. Uh, I think we will see by the end of this year some. There are serious proposals floating and, and into early next year. And right. there will be an effort to legislate. Um, but I think it's uh, probably going to take longer than, than 2019. Great. Well, Cam, we're out of time. Thank you again. It's always a pleasure. Uh, be sure to check out his brother's book, available on now for pre-order on Amazon. And join us next week as we continue this debate with uh, Christopher Painter. And this is Ben and Kelly. Check us out at internetlawcenter.net. Um, follow us at, at Cyberlaw Radio and check out the show notes at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Cam, always a pleasure. Everyone have a great week. Pleasure is mine. Thanks. The opinions expressed on this program 
are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.